there are certain rules to surviving. Believe me, I know. They always come back. The killer is a part of something in the past. This one just feels different. You're all in danger. Mom? Well, Sydney. I've seen this movie before. Not this movie. You said we were going to finish this. Go finish it, Sydney. He's dead. Hello, and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, I'm joined by my delightful co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it's a pleasure beyond measure to be here, and hopefully I'm going to be a bit less croaky on these than I've been on recent Movie Robcasts and recent Another Time McLeods, because I was a bit ill over Christmas, but my voice was a lot croakier than I thought it was. So apologies to our listeners for having to listen to that. You see, I didn't so much notice the croakiness. I do remember during the editing process having to cut out some coughs every now and then. It's like, oh, Rob's got a little bit of, nope, nope, that's a cough. Okay, just remove, remove that block. I had such a hacking cough. I think, I know lots of people have also had it. There was a hacking cough cold bug going around over Christmas and it just knocked you out. Yes, apologies for those moments when it sounded like there was gunfire going off and you had to chop that bit out. No, that's all right. It's, uh, it's quite fun just saying, okay, I just get to remove that section. I don't have to worry about it. Yes, indeed. Well, today we're going to be talking about the somewhat confusingly named Scream, the fifth in the Scream franchise. Yeah, this is one where they've kind of done a Halloween and they're now just calling it by the title of the first movie. And as we'll get into, a character in the film goes into why this is a requel and explains what a requel is. So I suppose in this we'll have to talk about the original Scream and the new Scream. Yes, that's probably the simplest way to refer to it. Well, before we get into what we thought of it, shall we say what it's about? The IMDb synopsis is, you know, pretty concise. 25 years after the original series of murders in Woodsboro, a new ghost face emerges and Sidney Prescott must return to uncover the truth. I mean, that's pretty accurate other than that, you know, Sidney Prescott is definitely more of a supporting character in this. She's a legacy character. Yeah, that's right, which is what they refer to them as when talking about the requels. It's like you have a whole set of new characters, but it's also very important to have the legacy characters. So those from the original movies have to return for the fans. And yeah, she is a supporting character in this. So the main character in this is Melissa Barrera plays Sam. So Sam Carpenter, which I assumed might be a reference to John Carpenter. Yeah, you got to think. And Melissa Barrera was very good in In the Heights last year. And I thought she made a pretty good lead here. So she has to return to Woodsboro when her sister, Tara, played by Jenna Ortega, is attacked by a killer in a ghost face mask. And she has left Woodsboro in the past for family reasons, but Sam now has to come back to protect her sister. And at that point, it's obvious that Ghostface is back and is leaving quite a pile of dead bodies. So they have to find out who it is. And she's joined in this by Jack Quaid, who plays Richie, her boyfriend, but also Nev Campbell as Sidney Prescott and Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers and David Arquette as Dewey, Sheriff Dewey. 
but he's not a sheriff anymore. Is this the first time that uh, David Arquette and Courtney Cox have acted together since the breakup? I am not sure if it's the first time, but they were definitely still married when Scream 4 came out in 2011. So it could be because there's a really quite sweet scene in this where they talk about the fact that they're not together anymore. And it's like, well, in a film that's very meta, this is meta emotion happening right here because they're doing some method acting, presumably, right? Yeah, I mean, it feels really authentic. And actually, the uh, I, I think we could definitely talk a bit more about the legacy characters in a bit. But I thought, on the whole, the uh, the new cast for this were really good. I liked that it did some unexpected things in terms of the order of people who it killed off. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know that everybody there who's not from the original films, and maybe even some people from the original films, could always die. But yeah, it's got, you know, Jack Quaid as the boyfriend character, Richie. Um, Dylan Minnette, interested to see him in this as Wes and kind of with like a bleach blonde hair. So what have we seen him in before? Dylan Minnette, I'm trying to think what, you'd, what we'd know him best from. Um, he was in the Goosebumps movie, I think. So he was in Don't Breathe and Let Me In, which was the terrible remake of Let the Right One In. So he's got some horror past. Oh, that's why I've been think. That's why he seems so immediately familiar to me. Is because I've recently been rewatching Lie to Me, and he's in an episode of that. Okay, right. Yeah, he was cool. He was Tara's boyfriend, right? No, he was the one. I don't think he's got a girlfriend in it. I don't think he's dating in it. But he was the slightly geekier, more paranoid one who everyone's like, oh, immediately he's the killer. He's the. He is at the beginning when, and we'll get into the beginning in just a moment, but when Tara is talking... (laughs) I I think we'll get into the beginning in just a moment could be the tagline for this pod. Yes, indeed. But when Tara's talking to her friend Amber, played by Mikey Madison, who is the swimming pool Manson cult member from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's what she's going to be best known for. Um, I think that she says something about, like, yeah, Dylan is... Not pestering her, but there's some mention about him having some kind of like, yeah, romantic feelings or something. Okay. Yeah, he was good. And he's called Wes. So it's like, well, that's a reference. Clearly. I mean, the film is is dedicated to Wes Craven, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Um, Wes Craven, who, of course, directed the first four Scream films and is also one of the great horror directors, having did The Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, A Nightmare on Elm Street, um, Serpent and the Rainbow. I mean, for someone who was always struggling to get films made... He defined horror at least four times, and it's like... I mean, isn't there just a proud tradition of the best horror directors always struggling to get films made? Yeah, um, George Romero, Sam Raimi, David Cronenberg. I mean, Netflix wouldn't fund the David Cronenberg series. So Cronenberg says that he's having trouble getting money from Netflix, and they'll just throw cash at anything, I mean... So yes, there is there is a proud tradition of the best horror directors struggling to get money to get their films or their series made. So anyway, so as we said, we'll talk about the beginning. So the beginning of this film uh, is a phone conversation between the Tara character and the killer. And it plays out as a riff on the Drew Barrymore scene from the very first Scream, that 1996 original Scream. Now, of course, we have recently talked about a film that opens with a riff on a very, very famous opening in The Matrix Resurrections. That didn't work there, I don't think, at all. I thought this worked. I thought that the opening to this movie worked, and it worked for a number of reasons. One, I love the fact that she's on 
on her iPhone and the landline rings and she just ignores it because no one answers the landline anymore. I thought it was really funny. Because it's all just like robocallers. And... That's right. And I also love the fact that you watch old horror films and it's like, well, none of this would happen if they'd just got an iPhone. If they'd just got a mobile phone, none of this would happen. This film, I thought, did a really good job of making mobile phones a threat more than a help in times and situations of peril. I thought that was quite cleverly done. But what did you think of the opening? I thought it was really, really effective. I mean, obviously, it very consciously recalls and actually references the scene from the first film as it was recreated in the in-universe series, a movie series, Stab. And that's the thing. I think the danger of going meta is meta is thinky and thinky isn't necessarily scary. Yeah. It's a bit like a joke. If you have to explain a joke, it's not funny. Yeah. But this film managed to be clever while still sort of maintaining its kind of horror. It didn't It didn't kind of lean too far into it. And the fact that you can kind of have a scene where it's like, well, this scene is almost recreating a scene from a previous film, yet the, the stakes within this are still high enough and it's well executed enough that it's effective. Yeah, that's right. So why did it work in this case then? Because I thought it did work. I thought the opening was a good way to start this movie. Because on the one hand, you have the meta commentary that makes the film kind of savvy and engaging in terms of its narrative. But then on an individual scene by scene basis, it's well executed. It understands the mechanics of building tension in a good scare. I think there's a scene later on, certainly one of my favourite scenes of the film, with the Wes character played by Dylan Minnette, where he keeps on like opening cupboards and opening the fridge. And every time he does it, the music builds, because obviously you expect when he closes it, the killer's going to be there. And then the killer isn't. And they keep repeating that in a way that could almost feel parodic if it didn't still work, because you actually still think this could be the time. Yeah, this could be the time that there is actually the ghost face there. That was really well done. And there were people laughing at that. But that's the thing I thought was really good about this film was that it understood that a lot of good horror is that comic tension when you're building the anticipation to the point where you have to start giggling because you need to release. But nothing scary is happening, so you can't scream. So you just start to giggle. And that reminded me, There's a, I think it's Final Destination 3 has a scene where someone is in their flat and they're just doing things that might mean that they're going to get killed. Like they're cooking and they're putting things into like a trash disposal thing. And it's like, and it goes on and on and on and builds up and builds up and builds up. And it's like, what is going to be the final thing that gets them? And yeah, that scene with the Wes character, when he's just opening the fridge and opening the cupboards, I thought was really well done. And it's also very clever in terms of that whole scene is set in daylight. And there's a murder in the daylight as well, outside, that I thought, that's good. I can't remember seeing a brightly lit ghost face murder in a Scream movie. And it just had a really chilling feel to it. This figure in a black robe with a ghost face mask, knifing someone in broad daylight. Matt Bettinelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillett, who were the two directors on this, they do know how to make a horror film. They also previously did Ready or Not. Again, a great mix of humour and horror. Samara Weaving. And Samara Weaving was in it, that's right, yeah. So that came out in 2019. So, yeah, they know how to do a good horror film. So I suppose at this point, it's uh, we haven't really talked about if we like the film or not. So, um, did you like Scream 2022? I did. And that's just, you know, this is coming from somebody who's, I like the previous films. I don't love them. They were never, you know, my thing. Sorry, that sounds dismissive. It was never like a formative franchise for me in any way. I thought they were clever and I, I liked them. 
But this I thought was really effective because it does have the impossible task and comments on the the impossible task of how do you do a film like this today? I mean, it's been 11 years since Scream 4, as it was, I think, 11 years since Scream 3 before that. Yes, that's right. So Scream 1 came out in 96, 2 in 97, 3 in 2000. Then there was this 11-year break. And it's weird, this one, because Scream 4 is basically this Scream again. It just did it a lot earlier. And it kind of did it before it became a big deal that we were doing this, i.e. before The Force Awakens and they got all the original Star Wars legacy characters back. Because Scream 4 is is essentially this. It's like we have new characters, but we have the legacy cast and Ghostface is back. And there's a big mystery as to why this person's back. And I think the Scream 4 is really underrated. It's also Wes Craven's last film. I never saw the Mm. Scream series that's on Netflix, but I hear it. You don't have to see that. But I really like the Scream franchise. I remember seeing Scream at the cinema in 97. And I was writing for a fanzine at that point. And was like, do you want to go and see Scream? And it's like, well, I like Wes Craven's new nightmare. And I thought that was very clever in terms of how self-reflexive it was and being set in the real world and commenting on the whole Elm Street franchise. This seems to be him doing a slasher that has some of that, but it's actually set within like a fictional world and a fictional town. So yeah, whatever. Okay, fine. I'll go and see that. It's Wes Craven. But the slasher film was deader than dead when Scream came out. And it was just completely written off as a rather unfortunate episode in horror cinema that didn't have a lot to it. In Wes Craven's New Nightmare had done something to redress the critical balance, but it was seen as like just an endless parade of the same old thing over and over again and really gore for gore's sake. So to do a slasher film that kind of commented on that, again, just didn't seem like the best idea in the world. But I remember seeing Scream at the cinema and was one of the best cinema experiences I've had. The audience really got into it. It also has to be said that Scream, and this Scream does it as well, so Scream 2022, doesn't forget to be a horror film. And they're both 18 still, because the horror is really nasty. The knifings are really nasty, so there's a real sense of danger in them. Again, that was something where it's like, slasher films became very, very jokey, and they didn't really have any sense of danger to them. So to see a killer that actually moved very fast and wouldn't be distracted from killing their victim, at the time, it was new to see that again. And I think in terms of the sequels, it kind of develops the idea, the fact that there is no one ghost face. In fact, there are usually two ghost faces. And the idea that this is kind of a... Uh, identity, I can't think of the right word, uh, that's kind of picked up by disaffected individuals, by deeply troubled individuals, and kind of used as a vehicle for mayhem. Yeah, so again, there were other things in the slasher movies, like sometimes it would be more than one person, and there was a really interesting piece that was written about Italian cinema, about the Jallo, because that would often do it as well, where the killer in a horror film is is so big that it can't be contained within one person. It's something that has to be spread across different people. And part of that is because if you're making a film that hasn't got a supernatural element to it, well, sometimes these films seem supernatural, because it's like, well, how can that person have done it? Because they were with me at the time and that kind of stuff. Yeah, the original Scream, the audience were just going wild for it. And I mean, the fact that Drew Barrymore is in it at the beginning was like well this is kind of like this generation's psycho right because she's kind of the most famous person in this Courtney Cox was big at the time because of Friends but it's like Drew Barrymore's in it but it's an extended cameo yeah so that first screen was so so brilliant and it holds up so well 
I've ended up on a page, on a Wikipedia page about Ghostface, and I've potentially come up with, I discovered what could be my favourite sentence. I don't know in anything ever. Can I please read it? Go on. In another porn parody, the gay movie Moan, the version of Ghostface seen in the film does not wear a mask. Instead, he has a hood and face paint that resembles the mask. Presumably this change was helped, <laughs> presumably this change was made to help make the movie more erotic. <laughs> 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 wow, I think that says more about the person writing it than it does about Moan. <laughs> I'd imagine it was because I didn't want to get sued into the Stone Age, but... Um, yeah. And again, that was another thing, was that it was a good look, that mask that seemed to be based on Edvard Munch's The Scream. That's just a good look, and Ghostface has never stopped being scary in Scream movies. Even though it's been parodied so many times in things like the scary movie movies, in Scream... Ghostface is always a chilling sight. That's quite remarkable because it just has been imitated so much. I mean, that's the thing. I was potentially, I probably saw, and this, I don't know if this ages me. No, sorry, I don't know if this dates me, sorry. I probably saw Scary Movie. In fact, I almost certainly saw Scary Movie before I saw Scream. (laughs) Right, so that was an interesting experience when you came to see Scream then. I mean, that's the thing. The film is, the fact that it still manages to be surprising after... 25 years and five iterations in which the idea becomes you know this is a recurring thing it's somebody picking up this mask and doing murders the fact that it can still be interesting and unexpected and obviously this film is incredibly meta in terms of talking about what requels do in terms of talking about legacy characters but it keep, it kind of it's clever to the point that it keeps you double guessing because you don't know to what extent it's going to be clever and to what extent it's going to fall back on sort of you know the old tropes in order to catch you out yeah so let's go into that a little bit because the original scream was about someone is killing teens and they are using the rules of slasher films So you have to abide by the rules of a slasher film. You never split up. You never say, I'll be right back. You never have sex. But in this, it's commenting on the phenomena that we're in right now, which is the recall. And there's the Mindy character played by Jasmine Savoy Brown. And she goes through what a recall is. So would you like to say, what is a recall? A requel is between a sequel and a reboot. Essentially, modern film producers realise that you can't just do a sequel because you know, your, your franchise is probably pretty tapped out, but audiences don't want a straight reboot because you're getting rid of all the stuff that made the original series great. What they want is something in between. So they want something that kind of plays on the legacy of those films. I mean, the the Star Wars sequels are a pretty great example of that in terms of bringing back the original characters and supporting roles, but introducing a new, younger cast that are kind of more relatable to a new audience and playing with those original ideas, but developing them. The extent to which Forced, The Force Awakens is very familiar to anybody who's seen the original series and has that air of nostalgia to it, but kind of brings enough new to it to kind of make you feel that it's not just a retread. And Scream has a lot of commentary on that, as well as the kind of... I think I don't know if it's the first film I've seen to use the phrase elevated horror. Yeah, like all Scream films, there is a very arch-knowing commentary on the current state of horror cinema. In this one, at the beginning, when the Tara character is talking to the person that turns out to be the killer, she says how she doesn't like jump-scare horror movies. She likes elevated horror, like the Babadook. 
And it was nice to hear that. Um, the analogue to that from the original is when Drew Barrymore says, well, I liked the first Nightmare on Elm Street, but the sequel sucked. And that got a big laugh when I saw it at the cinema. So yeah, it is one of those that does the meta stuff really well and it's funny and there's one point when Sydney says to the killer you really need to get some new material the problem is I was thinking well the last four big cinema trips that I've done is Ghostbusters The Matrix Resurrections Spider-Man No Way Home and now Scream all of them in one way or another are requels and it's like this is becoming just the way that Hollywood makes films now. This is the dominant genre is the requel. This is the Spider-Men pointing at each other meme, isn't it? Yeah, or it's the snake swallowing its own tail. (laughs) Yeah, Ghostbusters had some nice moments in it. The Matrix completely failed, I thought. Spider-Man No Way Home had absolutely magical moments in it. And Scream, the new Scream, also does that. I'm just becoming really, really familiar about the tropes of a recall now. If you were going to put them in descending order of preference, what order do you think? Well, they're so different. Well, I like horror, so I'd say that Scream would be top for me, even though I think this owes a lot to Scream 4, which is a really undervalued film. Spider-Man No Way Home, I enjoyed it, but I was slightly underwhelmed by it. And Ghostbusters, and then obviously The Matrix. I mean, in terms of the meta-narrative, you said that you, off-mic, said that you wanted to talk about The Matrix. So is there anything there you've got to say between The Matrix and this movie? Because they both, more than those others I've mentioned, these really do lean into the meta-narrative. And we are commenting on the fact that everyone knows the off-screen history here, including the fact that David Arquette and Courtney Cox are not married anymore. I mean, that's in there too. And yeah, for me, the order would be, well, I think I, I liked Spider-Man No Way Home more than you did. So Spider-Man went No Way Home, then this, then Matrix, then Ghostbusters. I genuinely think, and I wish I didn't, that Ghostbusters is actually a pretty worthless movie, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Right. Matrix Resurrections, again, plays with a lot of the same ideas in terms of being iterative, how things change, how things stay the same. But I think my issues with what this new Scream does, the new Matrix doesn't, is it actually succeeds at doing what the original films did. It still manages to be a Scream film while commenting on the phenomenon that is Scream. The Matrix Resurrections comments on the phenomenon that is the Matrix, but it doesn't work as a Matrix film. That's right. And it's also one of those things where it's like, well, the Matrix Resurrections fails because the action in it is rubbish. Scream works because the horror in it is well executed. I mean, that said, in terms of this Scream film, I think it's a good Scream film. I don't think it's a great Scream film. I need to watch Scream 4 again because I remember enjoying that more. This just had some things in it that really, really bugged me. And I thought, well, the, re- the fact that I'm noticing this, I think, is also a element of the script that is not keeping me completely involved. For example, there are three times in this movie when... Characters are driving at speed to a place where someone is in peril, but that person doesn't know they're in peril, so they're driving to the rescue of another character. At no point do they phone the police and say, could you please get a car there as well? Because presumably... I was surprised by the uh, slow police response times in this film, even in the cases where somebody does manage to get a call through. Although I was just glad that in none of the... um those driving sequences, did they get T-boned by another car with that oh-so-predictable side-on shot through the window where you suddenly see, like, the the Mack truck coming towards them an instant before it hits. 
yes, they didn't lean into that cliche, but it still, I thought, was a plot hole, particularly when there were other people in the car. It's like, well, you drive, I'll call the police and see if they can send someone there ahead of us. Just seemed like, why is no one doing that? That's three times that we've had this <laughs> same event in this movie and no one has thought to call the police to get them there ahead of them. Also, in, in the uh, the opening scene... And this is in the trailer, so it's not really spoiling anything. You've got the uh, the idea that um, the house has got all these automatic locks that can be opened by your phone, and she's locking them, and the killer's reopening them, and you know trying to gain access to the house. Surely you just go to the bathroom. You go to somewhere you know has a manual lock, and then call the police. I wrote that in my notes. <laughs> I wrote, why doesn't she run up to the bathroom and just lock the bathroom door? <laughs> yeah, I thought that too. There's also a certain element of, like, the wounds that the character sustains at the opening. I was surprised that they weren't dead. (laughs) It's like, wow, I think they should be in a Marvel movie? Is this going to be a Spider-Man crossover? Because they're a superhero, right? And I thought, oh, is this not going to work? But ultimately, I thought it worked well enough. Um, There was another thing that really, really bothered me was that we are used to seeing deserted hospitals in horror films, but Jesus Christ, no one at all worked in that hospital. There was, like... One security guard worked in the hospital. Where is everyone? There are sequences that rely on no one being around for protracted lengths of time. And I just couldn't suspend my disbelief enough to buy that particular point, I have to admit. Yes. On the flip side, there was, I thought, a lot of things that were done really well. One of them being, in a slasher film, there'll always be a gratuitous sex scene. In Scream, it's like, if you have sex, you'll die. We've now moved beyond that, but no one wants to have sex because they don't know if their friend is the killer or not. So therefore, Hmm. everyone's just really, really paranoid. I thought that was very funny. And the fact that the obligatory shower scene in this was a male shower scene, I thought, was a nice little touch as well. The final act takes it right back to the original Scream, and I've read some reviews of that that say that that's creatively bankrupt. I thought it did enough within that space that it didn't seem just like a retread. I actually didn't... It's been a while since I've seen the original Scream. I didn't clock that until it was said. I don't know if you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to admit, I do like the Scream franchise, and I think that the original movie, I think, is a horror classic. So, yeah, it was like, okay, so you're going to go back to that. I thought that was done well. I thought that the new cast were good, but off-screen a lot of the times. I thought if there's one thing the film had trouble doing, it was making room for everyone. So really it was the Melissa Barrera character and the General Ortega character, so Sam and Tara, they were the two it kind of focused on. Their wider circle of friends were raised and then forgotten as the plot needed it because you also need to make room for Neve Campbell and also for Courtney Cox and David Arquette. Yeah, I say uh, that was... with me, But also I quite liked that. I think the actors did well in their respective roles. And I think you were also waiting to see, okay, presumably one of, at least one of these is a killer. As we said earlier, Jasmine Savoy Brown as Mindy, who's the kind of cine literate one who does the monologue about the trends of the requel. And you've got her brother, Chad, who's kind of the, uh, the sensitive jock, who's played by, played by Mason Gooding, who's the, uh, the son of Cuba Gooding Jr. Oh, wow, I did not know that. And then you've got Mikey Madison as Amber, who's the slightly gothy one, who was, you know, as you say, played um, Sadie Atkins in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then you've got Sonia Ben-Amar, who plays Liv, who's Chad's girlfriend. And yeah, I, I liked it. And I think, I mean, the film runs a little bit under two hours. Yeah. And I think it was really well balanced at what it did. You know, I had some issues with the hospital scene as well. And 
I was debating kind of re-watching the quadrilogy before going in to see this one. And I thought, actually, I think it will benefit being watched by itself. It's simultaneously made on the assumption that everybody who's watching it has seen the other films and knows them really well. But that you don't need to in order because you'll kind of get the jokes even without that because you'll be able to you'll make the assumption on what was in the previous films. Yeah, I thought that. And that kind of reminded me of Spider-Man No Way Home, just because I saw Spider-Man No Way Home the day before I saw Scream, and the way that you don't need to have seen Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2 to enjoy the character in the new Spider-Man. It's like, this is being made for two different audiences. Both films are quite good in the way that they have something for those who are very, very familiar with the previous films, but also you don't have to have done all of your homework to understand and enjoy this movie. And I actually think you're right. I think it would have taken something away from this film to watch the Scream 1 to 4 films because I think this film you would actually say, oh, this is just quite a pedestrian retread of those films if watched very close to it. I'll be interested to watch this film as number five at the end of the previous because from what I can remember of Scream 4, and it's been a few years since I've seen it, it does very, very similar things to this. That said, I did enjoy the movie. Wasn't blown away by it, but I did enjoy it. Yeah, that's pretty much my take on it as well. Are we having a spoiler section? Oh, we can do if you want. Um, I wasn't thinking of that, but... Should we have a short spoiler section? Yeah, okay then. Well, let's go into spoilers now. And what shall we use as the spoiler sound? Uh, The uh, psycho shower string. I'm thinking actually the ringing phone and the soundbite, would you like to play a game? Yeah, that sounds like a plan. Right, so when you've heard that, you know that you're in the spoiler section and we will be talking about spoilers in the new Scream film. So if you haven't seen the new Scream film, please stop because it is worth seeing before it is all spoiled for you. Thank you for listening. And if you haven't seen it, then please listen after you have seen the new Scream film. Would you like to play a game? We are now in the spoiler section. (laughs) Yeah, over to you in terms of what were the surprises that you liked? Or didn't like, sorry. Well, they were surprises in the context of the film itself, but you could kind of predict them based on the meta nature of it. Go on. In terms of the death of Dewey. Yep. Who, they had to kill one of the legacy characters. It's a real requel tradition. You have to kill one of them. And it was always going to be Dewey, because as far as it goes, he's kind of the Han Solo of it. Yeah, that was the thing. I knew that Dewey was going to die. There was a nice fake-out where it seems as if he isn't going to die. And then when he doesn't go into the lift and says, I need to put one in the head and goes back, it's like, oh, well, now you're going to die then. And it's one of those where I thought this is going to be Sydney and Gale facing the new ghost face. It wouldn't work if it was a man and a woman, I don't think, as well as if it's two women, because, of course, history of slasher movies is always about men with knives chasing women. So, yeah, as soon as I go to the hospital, I thought, I don't think Jew is much longer for this world or this franchise. It was still nicely done, though. And it was bloody. I mean, this is a bloody Mm. movie. Because Ready or Not, the director's previous film, got an 18. That was a really harsh decision by the BBFC, because that film should have been a 15. This film earns the 18, I thought. There's also, obviously, the revelation that Richie, played by uh, Jack Quaid, is one of the killers. Yeah, did you guess... Sorry, did you guess either of the killers? Uh, I kind of guessed them both. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I guessed Richie because of the way that... He keeps vanishing. 
Well, he keeps vanishing, and also he gets that really nasty cut, and it's like, well, he's been properly wounded now, which is obviously a deflection for the audience to uh, deflect their suspicions. Also, Dewey says, it's always a love interest, it's him. And I thought, that's so on the nose that you're supposed to think that that's a red herring. I think actually that's true, because also Dewey knows all about this. So I kind of had my suspicions the whole way through, and to be honest, I have to admit, I kind of guessed well ahead of time that the Amber character was also the killer. Yeah, I mean, her, it's because it's the metacasting. It's because she plays Sadie in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it's like, I know you can play Psycho. There is that, and there's actually a moment, that point where she comes back at the end and screams and charges at them. Having been set on fire. That's right, is very, very similar to the bit in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when she is mauled by the dog and then stands up and screams and runs out and then gets set on fire. (laughs) But that thing about time to pass on the torch, and I hope you like that torch. Yeah, that made me laugh. I thought that was that Basically, because when she gets hit in the face with the jar, she's like, does that contain hand sanitizer? And I'm like, I don't know why there'd be a a glass jar containing hand sanitizer, but you're clearly going to get set on fire now, because obviously that's alcoholic. Yes, and of course, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, she gets hit in the face by a can of dog food, I think, isn't it? So Mm. it kind of plays that very, very close. I actually thought that that was well done, but yeah, I did. With the Jack Quaid character, Richie, I thought, I'm pretty sure it's him, I'm not entirely. But with the Amber character, played by Mikey Madison, it's like, I just think it's you. One, because, as you were saying, of the meta-narrative of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but also she gives good psycho face, I think. Well, for me, it was a combination of, in terms of Richie, what Dewey says, that you are supposed to kind of clearly write it off as being, oh, that's too obvious. Yeah. Do you also remember what he says when he leaves Dewey's house? Uh, what does he say? He was nicer in the movies. Yes, that's He's not right, me- yeah. Richie isn't meant to have seen the movies. I didn't think that was a clue, um, or like a giveaway, sorry, because we have seen him watch a stab movie at that point, so... I think there's enough of a suggestion that, there that I, I know that later seen... on it's implied that he's continuing to watch the stab movies. But at that moment I was like, no, I know it's been conveyed to us that you've seen one of them, that you've only just watched now because of the events that are going on. I think this is a clue. Yeah. And almost like it almost feels like he keeps on watching the stab movies because he kind of has to update his character bio. So that if he says something that's relating to the stab movies, as obviously, you know, a mega fan enough so that he's been inspired to kill, he doesn't give the game away. Mm. It was still nice when it was revealed, though. I didn't think that it was so obvious that when the revelation came, it was like, oh, yeah, fine, why didn't you do it five minutes ago? Because I'm getting a bit impatient. But I wasn't overly surprised when they were. The reason for it, I thought, was quite good in terms of toxic fandom. We have the right to do this because we love this so much that um, if you get it wrong, then we have the right to kill you. (laughs) Or if the filmmakers get it wrong, we have the right to make it right again and to do what we wanted to do. Because, of course, they're trying to orchestrate a series of events that they think will make a much better final movie. That I thought, but that's so on the nose. Is that working for me? But ultimately I thought, actually, yeah, because toxic fandom has just become a huge part of recalls. Studios are scared of their audience now. But what about you? No, I liked that. I thought I thought that was clever and that kind of justified the characters. Because you do need to keep coming up with reasons as to why this keeps happening. <laughs> I mean, it's one, it's one thing, you know, the actual, and it's actually a line in the film that Halloween has Michael Myers, um, Nightmare on Elm Street has Freddy Krueger, Friday the 13th has Jason Voorhees. Scream is premised on the notion that different people keep on doing this. 
And therefore, you keep on having to come up with character motivations. And a lot of them are obviously not dissimilar motivations. But in terms of how this film addresses recalls, addresses the idea of the ongoing franchise, it almost had to be that. And, you know, that whole idea of toxic fandom. And I do like the line they've got in this, you know, how can fandom be toxic? It's about love. Yeah, that was good. That did make me chuckle. And just on that point about it's always a different person, that goes back to that thing I was talking about that was written in the early 90s about how the killer in a horror movie is an entity in in and of itself and people will just inhabit that role but it's a constant throughout all of horror so it can never just be one character because it's just so much bigger than that and Scream I think is a really good illustration of that idea of course there's also Skeet Ulrich is in this film as well de-aged Skeet Ulrich yeah and that I quite like I like the fact that it turns out that the Sam character is the daughter of one of the killers from the first Scream movie. Uh, She is worried because she keeps seeing him um, and seeing visions of him that she is also a serial killer or that she will become a serial killer. I did think she had slightly plot convenient, I'm, I'm guessing, schizophrenia? Insofar as it didn't seem to impact her at all apart from the occasional visual hallucination, visual and auditory hallucination. Yeah, I think this is one of those things where it's like the script wasn't even being written in those terms. I think it was written in movie terms, which is this is something that is there so that we have a bit of doubt about this character. I don't, I mean, yeah, it's like could be schizophrenia, but it's like the film doesn't want to get into anything that heavy. I mean, also presumably because she never really met her dad, that vision that she's seeing of him bloody is presumably something that's come up within her head, having seen an a picture of him in the newspaper after the original killings. Yeah, indeed, I think that would be the case. That link back to the past is also in all the other screen films, of course, but it's also, yeah, it's one of those things where horror always takes it back to the family. The family is always the place where the horror originates from, or typically it's like, yeah, uh, I think the Wes Craven in interview said, the family is where all horror comes from. Everything stems from that. So I like the fact that there was that direct familial link there. And had that nice little thing at the end where she says to the Richie character, it's unwise to try and murder the daughter of a serial killer and then goes completely kind of psycho on him. And it's like, well, actually, if you wanted to do something slightly different with this, you seem to be setting up a Dexter-like character now because she clearly was very adept at murdering someone and seemed to quite enjoy murdering him as well, but is a good guy within this film. So if they wanted to do something slightly different, then they could lean into that. Which also reminded me of the end of Halloween, the 2018 version, that seemed to suggest that the granddaughter was scarred by what happened and could actually become quite dangerous herself. But that was completely jettisoned for the worthless Halloween kills. Yeah, I almost hope that if they do another Scream film, they almost call it Scream Lives, just as kind of like a, um, a corollary to Halloween kills. Um, it will be interesting to see if they do follow this up because unless they do something different, I can't see where they can go now because it really is like, well, you can do the same thing again, but how much longer can we keep doing this? Well, you know, give it, give it, give it another 11 years. Well, I would recommend that you go back and watch Scream again because it holds up so well. And actually Scream 2, I think, is really good as well. Because when that came out, it was like, oh no, because Scream was so perfect that to do a sequel is just to lean into what made slasher films shit. And then Scream 2 came out and it was like, oh, that was actually really good. Oh, well done. In the in the new Scream, they talk about, I think it's the 
eighth stab movie and they say it was done by the knives out guy who's clearly ryan johnson and they're kind of referencing um the last jedi yes but then they showed the trailer for it and it looks very low and it looks very lowest common denominator it doesn't look as in like oh we're gonna subvert it we're gonna you know try and do something new and interesting it looks like it's just gone they've just decided to make a dumb slasher movie out of it yeah because earlier in the film i think the richie character says the Stab franchise went off the boil with the fifth movie. Yeah. And you're thinking, oh, well, yeah, ha, ha, because we're watching Scream 5. So you're thinking that by Stab 8, it really is kind of like your Halloween 8 or Friday the 13th Part 8, where it's like just the most mind-numbing thing to actually watch it. But that was just to get that Last Jedi reference in, I think. Hmm. Okay, then is there anything else to say about the new Scream? No, I think that's, apart from the inevitable Reddit thread, I think we pretty much pretty much put it to bed. <laughs> well, thank you very much for, uh, for the chat, Rob. It's been a pleasure, as always. Thank you. If people want to find you online, where can they do so? Uh, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. On Letterboxd, I'm at letterboxd.com slash robdan. My writing can be found at electric-shadows.com or filmstories.co.uk or lovehorror.co.uk. We also have a sister podcast called Another Time McLeod, which is a scene-by-scene breakdown of that classic movie Highlander, and you can find that wherever you're listening to this. You can also follow that on Twitter at McLeodTime. And if you want to drop us a Highlander-themed email, then you can at whowantstopodforever at gmail.com. Okay, and yeah, if you want to follow me online, you can do so on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be with you again very soon. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Um, Halloween. You know, the one with the guy in the white mask who walks around and stalks babysitters? Yeah. What's yours? Um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Is that the one where the guy had knives for fingers? Yeah, Freddy Krueger. Freddy, that's right. I like that movie. It was scary. Well, well, the first one was, but the rest sucked.